there's a lot of mar different kinds of marginalized groups that don't have a voice for themselves. And when I originally started working, women who are in domestic violence situations are often silenced for a lot of reasons, and working through different systems legally or through housing, financial, a lot of those systems aren't designed to serve victims. And so that work really prepared me for uh, the work I'm doing at the CAC because kids are even more silenced in terms of their ability to advocate for themselves. Um, and so it's really important at the CAC that we give kids a space where they can feel like they can tell their story. And that whole sort of concept of giving voice to people who don't have one and to be able to empower them to either work through systems or make the systems understand that they should be serving victims, um, not the other way around, has really been what's driven me. Kristen Pavlik McCauley is the interim director of the Children's Advocacy Center of Hamilton County. The month of April is Child Abuse Awareness Month. And so in this special episode, we highlight the incredible work of the CAC and what is really one of the most progressive models in the country focused on serving and supporting the children of our community. This is the Camp House Podcast, and I am your host, Matt Busby. Kristen, well, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. My guest today is Kristen Pavlik McCauley, and we're actually going to be talking about the Children's Advocacy Center of Hamilton County and some of the incredible work they do in protecting our children. And, um, you know, before we get into talking about you know, the center and your guys' work there and how you mm -hmm. protect our kids, you know, tell us a little bit about yourself. Have you, have you, are you from Chattanooga? I'm not from Chattanooga. I'm a Yankee transplant. Um, did some work in the state of Florida, originally from Connecticut, and my husband and I moved here about two years ago, and it's been an adventure ever since. Yeah, so, did you, I mean, did you guys have any relationship? How'd you, how'd you end up in Chattanooga? He grew up here. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, All so right. we came back, and um, I've been coming, visiting Chattanooga for about almost 10 years, and we just love the city. We love it. All of it's got to offer mm -hmm. art, music, food. The nonprofit scene's great. The music scene's great, so... So, you know, give us a brief definition of the CIC sure. uh, and the very specific thing that you guys are advocating. Sure. So um, we're, we're a separate nonprofit. We work a whole bunch with the Department of Children's Services and law enforcement folks um, related to the investigation of child maltreatment, child abuse. We work specifically with populations of kids who are alleged victims of child sexual abuse and severe physical abuse. So what exactly is your role there? I'm the interim executive director. So I just help the folks that do the really hard work to make sure that they have all the resources they need to serve the kids that we see. So do you have a, a background in, in social work then, or what does, that, what does that look like? What does that look like? What does that look like? Um, so my education uh, was in English and women's studies, and I always wanted to do something around social justice and activism. Um, and that took me to do domestic violence work for about a decade. And we moved to Chattanooga, and the CAC was a wonderful organization that I got connected to and started working there. And child maltreatment is a hard gig, um, but it is really rewarding. Mm -hmm. um, and I've always done social justice advocacy work. It's just been a passion, a calling. 
And here in this city, the partners here, they really understand victim serving in that trauma-informed model where you don't ask people what's wrong with them, but like mm-hmm. what got them to where they're at. And so it's, it's really important that everybody works together. And I think in this community, that's really strong, differently than I've seen in other states. I love how Kristen describes her vocation as a calling, and in this line of work I believe that is crucially important. The CAC is focused on serving and supporting children who are victims of abuse in our community. So week in and week out they see circumstances that are heartbreaking and emotionally draining. That said, this work can be highly rewarding as you are pursuing justice on behalf of children. With those sorts of highs and lows, I think you would have to live into this vocation as a calling with the sense that this is what you were created to do. So for Kristen, the most compelling part of her job, and for most of the staff of the CAC, is to be able to be a voice for victims who don't often have a voice. What you said there is really interesting is that these systems aren't designed to serve victims. So give us a, you know, okay, when we're talking about child abuse and it's being reported and how that gets investigated, explain kind of the old model. Sure. And then your guys' new model, because I think my listeners are going to be kind of blown away. When I, when I see those sort of things, when I see that system, I'm yeah. blown away that that's how it used to be. Yeah. And, with that, and it's not something you normally think about. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you shine a light on it, you realize this is far healthier. So go ahead. Yeah. So if, if I were to report child abuse, let's say 20 years ago. Yep. Uh, or in a different state. Or even in a different state today. Yeah. yeah. Talk me through the process of what would happen. Right. So um, it w- there was a lot of expectation on a kid to be able to clearly, in a linear manner, recount what's happened to them. To Teachers are our number one reporters, so let's say it's the examples that they talk to their teacher, and then the teacher calls the nurse because they think that there's been some sort of injury, and then the kid has to say it again to the nurse, and then maybe they call in the administration, and then, you know, so that it, within that system, that kid's already talked to three people, and then they talk to law enforcement, and then they have to go to the hospital to get an exam, and there might be several people in the hospital, like a social worker. And it's just until recently that, within the last you know two decades, that there are specialized nurses who work just on sexual assault cases. So let's you know put that into the mix as well, because if you're dealing with someone who doesn't understand that you have to treat somebody medically different if there's been a sexual assault, that's another layer like a physical layer that's connected to the emotional layer. And every time a kid's recounting a story, the integrity of the story changes. And so what they're going to remember is going to be different. And the kids that are often preyed upon in these situations are really compliant kids. So they're going to want to tell the right answer. I'm doing air quotes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, To the adults around them. And they might take on our words as adults or our actions. And it, Unfortunately, what happens after this kid talks and talks and talks and in the sort of legal sense of things, they become an unreliable witness because what they said to their teacher is different than what they said to the nurse, then to the doctor and to the law enforcement person. And so then it becomes much more difficult to catch perpetrators because there's not that linear story that says this happened one time in this manner, this, you know, in this place uh, on my body or whatever. And so... The prosecution and holding uh, perpetrators accountable under that model was really hard because it's not that the child isn't remembering. If we talk about the impact of trauma, right, 
when people are in car accidents, they don't remember the time of impact to when they get home. They remember like a smell or color. And it's the same thing when people experience assault that they're not gonna remember in a straight line all the things that happened. And with the cognitive development of a child, that's even right. more impacted. Right, right. So that's how it used to look. All right, so that's the old model. And, we can, and, and I think we can clearly see how that does not serve the victim Mm-mm. in that case. Um, and in fact, it even almost reinforces a lot of negative things about mm-hmm. uh, abuse cycles mm-hmm. and stuff. So, uh, so talk us through kind of what, what your model is at sure. the CAC and kind of how we, we deal with these things now as a community. Sure. So there's a lot of levels of serving the victim in a trauma-informed way in the city. The first level is that we're located in the Family Justice Center. And the Family Justice Center... Which we'll come back to because I want you to talk about that too. Okay. Um, Okay, so I'll save that for a little bit later then. And so we're located in this place that is a victim-serving building. And it might sound strange to have like a trauma-informed building. I'm doing air quotes again. I need to stop doing that. (laughs) (laughs) But like uh, even the lighting, the colors, all those things really matter because when someone's experienced a trauma what makes them feel safe and what helps them to have a uh, disclosure is that they know that it's not going to be a dangerous place for them to be. And there's a lot of uh, environmental things that are taken into account. So um, one mandated reporter calls the hotline. The hotline screens in the call. And that's a statewide thing when you're talking Mm -hmm. about the hotline. And it's um, it's in Nashville. It lives in Nashville, and they screen out because... The other thing that gets complicated is if there's uh, abuse happening in one county, but the kid lives in another county, and sort of all that stuff gets Mm -hmm. sorted out on that end. So they get assigned a worker, and they come to us at the CAC. And we do what's called a forensic interview when a child has an alleged uh, situation happening. And what that is, there's a, a room. It's just simply two chairs where the interviewer sits with the child, and it's videotaped. And the interviewer is trained to ask non-leading, unbiased questions. So it's not a therapeutic environment. It's a fact-finding environment. Um, And depending on the child's uh, age, you know, the rooms are set up slightly different. That way the kid feels comfortable. And the interviewer asks them very specific questions about what happened, where it happened on themselves, on the child's body. Um, if there are any other kids, you know, very specific questions. And the law enforcement folks investigating the case and the DCS worker, the Department of Children's Services worker that are that is assigned to the case, observe in a separate room altogether. And it's good because the kid is able to sort of develop the rapport with the forensic interviewer and the folks that need that inf- information for their cases or to prosecute um, or investigate the perpetrators get it without the kid having to talk to, like, five different people. We do um, on-site medical exams. We have a nurse practitioner who's a pediatric sexual assault nurse, which is a very specific specialty. She's got a very special heart. She has an extremely difficult job. Um, And so our forensic interviews are done on kids three and up because less than three, it's hard to get, um, you know, uh, any kind of specific information. Um, and that's good practice across the country, too. It's not something that we as a CAC decided. Um, but our medical exams are done from kids from birth to 18. And um, sometimes in the cases, this is one of those places, like when I'm talking to folks in the community, I always say, there's a lot of unpleasant things that I have to say, and I feel like this is the one that I have yeah. the most um, 
feeling of unpleasantness that when there are cases of children under three where there's been any kind of sexual abuse, those medical exams are sometimes the only place we gather any kind of evidence. Yeah. And our sexual assault exams are not like what you see on Law and Order, <laughs> mm. as much as we love Law and Order. <laughs> um, but it's uh, it's a different thing, and um, so our nurse practitioner does that, and we're really fortunate to have one on staff. We're one of the only CACs that in the state of Tennessee that has one that lives with us. Um, so those are sort of the intervention services that happen, and the way that we work with uh, the Department of Children's Services and Law Enforcement. And then we offer therapy as long as that kid needs in the same location. So the whole model of having the kid go to five different places is not helpful for the family. Right, right. <laughs> um, because, you know, this is an issue that uh, touches every single kind of family. Yeah, and, and those are locations as well that are not designed for children. And I've, right. I've had the privilege to, you know, have a tour of your space, and it is, is very much designed for mm-hmm. kids. So I, I would imagine... It's even probably a place that kids enjoy visiting because it is, I mean, it's beautiful, it's interesting, um, it's peaceful. We try. Yeah. We want to make sure that the kids don't feel like they're in trouble or that they've done something to, um, you know, make them feel like they're bad because a lot of times that's what perpetrators tell kids is that it's their fault that nobody's going to believe them and that um, it's, you know, something that they brought on themselves. So, yeah, we try really hard to make the environment feel kid-friendly as well as um, the beginning of their their good story because so much of what brought them to us is it it impacts them and it can impact their family too yeah so our therapists are in the same space we have a family advocacy program that basically whatever that family needs and like I said this is an issue that um, we see kids from every zip code in Hamilton County Mm. I think there's a big stereotype this is happening in certain communities with certain kinds of families um, but the reality is that it happens in high socioeconomic areas as well as folks in poverty, people of all racial and ethnic backgrounds come to see us too um, because it's a, it's often looked at as a secret problem mm-hmm. that families have. Yeah. Um, so the therapies on site, our family advocates are there to serve whatever needs the family have beyond, has beyond what we can provide to them um, on site. And uh, we also have... A uh, coordinated team, uh, we call it the Child Protective Investigation Team because we love acronyms and nonprofit <laughs> or SIPIT. Um, <laughs> and we're really fortunate. One of our SIPIT, um, I love that I get to brag on the staff uh, during this talk too um, because we have one of the best um, SIPITs in the state in terms of how we collaborate with law enforcement and district attorney's office. And what those meetings are, they come together, those, all those folks that investigate come together uh, twice a month and they have a docket and it's all the cases that we've seen that DCS is investigating, that law enforcement's investigating and the district attorney and DCS decide is there enough information for prosecution or to substantiate the case. And a DCS substantiation is different than a prosecution. Um, but it basically means that that person who's the alleged perpetrator, there's enough evidence to put them on the child abuse registry. And and that would be different from official charges? Mm-hmm. Wow, okay. Yep, so there's two arms. Um, and so uh, those folks come together and we share information. Like 
our forensic interviewers sit in that meeting and say, well, here's what the forensic interview brought up. Our medical folks sit at that meeting and say, well, this is what the medical report said. And then the law enforcement folks will say, well, I talked to the perpetrator or I haven't been able to you know, find the perpetrator. That happens a bunch. Um, mental health folks. And then the DA sits and says, well, these are the questions that we might need answered before we can move forward with prosecution. Because yeah. they have different... Um, different standards for the different sure. places they come from. Yeah. So, and then we have uh, prevention education that we offer to the community. And we've been working a whole lot with the Hamilton County School System, training almost all their teachers and our stewards of children training. Um, because the more people understand that they're everybody in the state of Tennessee is a mandated reporter and this is everybody's job to speak up about, the more that we can um, you know, prevent this problem from happening. So I want to pause just to reiterate how progressive our Children's Advocacy Center is. In most cases, when a child tells an authority about abuse, that child would have to relate that story to multiple adults they don't know in multiple environments, which create a situation where the children's story inevitably changes. And that isn't because the child isn't telling the truth, but because of the way that trauma survivors are able to recount what happened to them and the way that children are naturally compliant with adults. Now, when abuse is reported, the child is brought to the Family Justice Center, and specifically to the CAC's offices, which is a peaceful, child-friendly space. The child then meets with a forensic investigator who is trained to speak with children of all ages. The interview is recorded and live-streamed into another room where representatives from the Department of Human Services, local law enforcement, and the district attorney's office are able to listen. Then after that, if further services are needed, there's a nurse practitioner on site to do medical exams and counselors in case the child needs to come back later for any sort of therapy. So rather than a child who's experienced a trauma, having to meet with multiple people, tell their story numerous times in different places, they come to one place, meet with one person, and everyone who needs to be involved is there. This is one of those processes where when I heard her explain this for the first time, I was blown away by how progressive it was. And once you see this model, you begin to realize how inadequate the old system was in serving the victims of these traumatic experiences. On top of that, the state of Tennessee is one of only two states in the nation that sets up a fund to support children of abuse throughout their life. So in the future, if they need counseling services or any kind, there's money available to them to get the help and the treatment that they need. This is such a progressive system, and I'm so proud that our community has put such an emphasis on these sort of victim services. Well, you know, you bring up the, the public schools here in Hamilton County, and, you know, it's, it won't be any news to our listeners that sexual abuse has been in the news. So have, have you guys, I know for you it's a, it's a weird thing, have you guys experienced any kind of uptick in reporting since some, a lot of this has come to light? So, um... What's true about reporting is that um, no matter what kind of violence you're talking about, it's hard for people to feel like they want to get involved. I ask that question when I do trainings across the county, and we train police officers, we train teachers, parents, uh, community members, daycares, and we say, well, what, what do you think prohibits people from feeling comfortable to report this? And categorically, it really doesn't matter who I'm talking to. They say, well, it's we don't want to get involved. And that's an honest answer because I think people 
what we do and what people's expectation of what their involvement is is really different what the reality is mm -hmm. and what we talk to folks about and the biggest um, I think enlightening thing for a lot of mandated reporters is that it's the job of people like the Department of Children's Services or the people at the CAC to find out the specific facts mm -hmm. and I think a lot of people feel like if they don't know the whole story then they can't report right and that's not true mm -hmm. <laughs> you can report on suspicion the statute even says suspicion of child abuse and so I think what's happened in Hamilton County is not necessarily unique to this type of issue and that um, people always uh, can use more information about what their expectations are and the more that people know widely that it's not their job to do a full-on investigation it's yeah. not an expectation and in fact when people do take that on it can mess up the investigation of the people who actually are supposed to be doing it yeah um, and that uh, you know 90% of the time, the person that's the perpetrator in these cases are somebody who's known to the child. Mm -hmm. And that, in any community, causes people to not want to get involved because you have to say that someone that you know and respect in your community is hurting children in a terrible way. Yeah. And that's really hard for anybody to speak up about. Um, the places we get reports from and the people who make the reports, that's confidential. We don't release that information yeah. at all. And I think that's the other piece for a lot of folks is like, well, is it going to get back to the person that I made this report? And in the state of Tennessee, you can report anonymously. You don't have to say who you are. We always encourage people, especially if they're educators, to say, no, this is who I am and this is the relationship I have with that kid because that holds a lot of weight for people doing the investigation. So last year, we, um, we served more kids than we ever have. But um, I think that, again, what's happened here is not necessarily something that is unique. And there's a lot of ways to look at it, that it's terrible that it took a child getting hurt the way that that child did in Udawa for this to come to light. Yeah. And for people to feel like they should be reporting more often. But it, to us, it means that more children are receiving, receiving services Absolutely, yeah. who should have been getting them the whole time. Right. So well, really and what's interesting about all that, too, you know, you said this at the very beginning, but teachers are your number one reporters yeah. of everybody, too. So yeah. uh, it's not it's not that the necessarily the, 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 the teachers in the school system is doing a bad job of this. <laughs> um, but I think that fear of reporting even something that's suspicious, yeah. it goes a long way into what into into what you're describing. And feeling like they have community support. That's the other sort of social norm around something like this is that if somebody feels like they're taking a personal risk and they're not going to be supported anything, right? Like that's, that's uh, social psychology. Um, but if they know that there's going to be better consequences to report and help a child than if they don't, that can be a catalyst for people too. But yeah, and that statistic about teachers, that's true in the state of Tennessee and that's true nationally. Teachers are just generally the, the people that are around children the most. Um, so they're going to report the most. All right. Well, earlier you mentioned, you know, you guys are in a brand new location and, uh, and it's in, it's in the CAC is located inside the Family Justice Center. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we haven't done anything on the podcast about the Family Justice Center yet. But uh, just briefly describe what that whole complex is. Sure. 
So the Family Justice Center model started in California and has spread all over the country. And Tennessee is in the process of having a couple of them spring up. Um, and basically, uh, what the Family Justice Center model promotes is much uh, what the CAC promotes, that um, they work, the Family Justice Center works with adult victims of domestic violence, elder abuse, um, Basically, we are on a campus to serve a victim for basically their, the, the length of their lifetime. Uh, so we see the kids, and then on the FJC side, there's the FJC, but there's also all the other on-site partners that serve victims. So Second Life, which serves human trafficking victims, is located over there. Helen Ross McNabb is over there, Legal Aid. Um, the partnership has off-site offices there, too and we're continually growing to be able to serve both the emotional, the legal, and the advocacy needs of people as um, different kinds of trauma impacts them. And what we know to be true too in this kind of work is that if somebody's victimized when they're a child, say with sexual abuse, the likelihood for them to be victimized as they become an adult in a domestic violence situation is high. So we just try to make sure that everybody knows all the resources so that we can um, help negate that. You know, you've mentioned the word trauma a few times now, mm -hmm. and, and, and I think this is something I'm hearing more and more often is how much more seriously the, the medical community is taking trauma mm -hmm. in general. Mm -hmm. um, because not only do you guys seem to be focused on trauma with kids and, and, and having a better understanding of how to counsel and deal with uh, these children who are experiencing trauma, but like mm -hmm. even Richmond just launched and created a trauma, a specific trauma center mm -hmm. uh, of counseling services over there as well. So, mm -hmm. uh, so that's really exciting to see Chattanooga kind of taking trauma a little bit more seriously yeah. from a medical perspective. So yeah. So we when we talk about the word trauma, um, there's been a big movement in uh, victim serving nonprofits, at least from my perspective, in about the last five to ten years to really shift, and it's it goes back to that, what's, what's wrong with you versus how did you get here kind of conversation or where, where we can meet you. Um, because what's true about services, and this is true, I think, with adult victims and with kid victims too, as a clinician or um, an advocate, you can sit with someone and you have the professional expertise to say, okay, this, I see this, 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 and happening. Like, you're going to need vouchers for school, you're going to need electric bill help, or, you know, uh, housing. But if the person is that you're working with doesn't see those as a priority or isn't there yet or has yeah. other things that they see as more important, that's what they're going to want to focus on. Yeah. So the trauma-informed model is really looking at how you can meet a person where they're at and listen to them. <laughs> I know it sounds super basic, right? Like, listen to a victim. Um, but in terms of service provision, it's like a paradigm shift, like a power shift as being a service provider that you have all this information. You're a professional, so you know what you know. But if you're a victim coming into a system and you don't know that there are five different places that you can go to get help with your electric bill, then you're just gonna know what you know. <laughs> yeah. So it's our job to almost be a concierge, for lack of a better metaphor, yeah. to say, well, these are the things that exist, and these are the things that you might be able to use. And I think um, that really, you see better, quote unquote, success rates with victims and their families when you present the information in that way, because it's empowering. They're gonna take that on, they're gonna 
they're going to see it as um, something that they're choosing to do, not something that someone with a bunch of alphabet soup behind their name is telling them is what is the best for their life because we don't live their lives. Yeah. Um, and I think the FJC, uh, you know, comes from that place too. And all the things that we do, we try to be victim-centered. With kids, it's a little bit more complicated too because sometimes parents make choices that aren't safe for kids. So there's that other layer that sometimes um, decisions have to be made so that the child's safe that are not necessarily what the family or the parent, you know, thinks is the best course of action. But with adult victims, it's a little bit different. And I think um, when we talk about trauma-informed care, the other thing that's taken a lot of movement um, in the child abuse world, as well as the domestic violence world in the last few years, and Chattanooga is doing a really good job of integrating this, is the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study. Mm. Sometimes it's called ACEs. Okay. Um, and it's this public health study that started in the mid-90s, but it takes like 20 years from stuff to go for research to real life. Yeah. And it's a series of questions that were asked to these folks who were participating in an obesity study. And uh, it was with a health insurance company and the Center for Disease Control and Prevention. And so these folks had all these chronic health problems, but they didn't have the risk factors that people typically do when they're participating in a study like this. So they were predominantly white, they were high socioeconomic, uh, almost all, more than half of them had a college degree or graduate degree. And so those are the social determinants of health that say, right. because you have these things, you're more likely. You should be, yeah. Exactly. So um, they asked them these 10 questions about what their social and emotional upbringing were. So like, did you live with someone who was divorced? Did you live with someone who had depression for more than a few weeks? Did you witness violence in your neighborhood or with the people in your home? Did you have any economic hardship? Um, so questions like that. And because it was a blind study with the health insurance company, they got a huge response rate that was honest. Yeah. <laughs> um, and for data nerds, like a response rate of almost 20,000 people is a really great group of research. And basically what it said, the more times people said yes to those questions around their childhood experiences, their long-term health outcomes wow. were poor. Wow. So we, when we talk about ACEs with almost everybody we train because it's really for educators and for parents, something that's tangible, a connection between something social, emotional, and health outcomes. Like yeah. It's a straight line. We know that what happens to us as kids, like that's why we read to infants. They're not going to pick up a book and read back to us but we know it increases their verbal ability when they're older. So ACEs is something that as an organization, I think Chattanooga is a community, there's a lot of stuff happening around that that leads and it connects to that trauma-informed model that you have to ask somebody's history to recognize what brought them to your door. All right, well, you know, I'd love for you to share some of the numbers as far as like a, a you know, a typical average year, like how many children sure. are you guys serving? So we saw 756 children. And um, almost every kid gets a forensic interview. If they're under three, they don't. Um, so you can do quick math, basically, when you look at just our forensic interview numbers. In terms of non-offending family members, um, we served about 400 or so of those uh, because we offer that service to everybody. And it's voluntary. All of our services are voluntary. That's the other piece to this. Like, we're... Um, we're a helper in the investigation, but we're also a helper to the family however they deem needed. Yeah. Um, the biggest service our family advocates provide is um, victims' compensation assistance. So 
in most states, if you're a victim of a crime, you can apply to the state for funding to um, sort of underwrite the cost of being a victim. So um, in the state of Tennessee and randomly the state of Hawaii, I don't know why we had the same thought process <laughs> as the Aloha State. Um, if you're a child victim of sexual abuse and you meet a couple of criteria, you can apply to the state of Tennessee for money that's put into a fund until that child turns 18. And they can be used for mental health, medical bills, anything to help that kid sort of move on from what's happened to them. Wow. And it's like filling out your taxes. It's That's a, incredible. It seems very progressive. It, like, it is. Yeah. yeah, for sure. It's a process because it's to the state. So you have to make sure you've got all your paperwork in order. And our advocates, that's what they do. So they can help sort of move that process along for our families. Um, and then our child protective investigation team um, saw 740 something cases and uh, they were um, either substantiated or prosecuted, okay. which is a really high yeah, rate for yeah. a county our size. Um, and through prevention, we saw over 5,000 adults and kids last fiscal year. This fiscal year, we've really concentrated on um, working with the adult population. And we'd say the, uh, you know, the saying that child abuse is an adult problem meaning adults have the power to uh, stop it from happening, but adults are the primary perpetrators also. So we've shifted a little bit, and we haven't provided as many children's programs. And in terms of demographics of the kids that we see, we saw about 60% uh, female clients and 40% male clients. And I think um, when we talk about sexual abuse, there's a lot of dynamics around that that we yeah. could like, spend another like three hours talking about. Um, but uh, when we talk about sexual abuse particularly, it's a hard thing for any kid to disclose. I think it's especially hard for a boy to disclose something like that. Girls just might more naturally feel comfortable having those conversations about their bodies with adults. It doesn't mean that it happens less to boys or that, hap you know, like there's, but there's other dynamics too um, yeah. around sexual assault when we talk about girls being victimized and systemic pieces around that. And the demographics in terms of racial breakdown are pretty reflective of what Hamilton County is comprised that's what, of. That's what it looks like, yeah. yeah. Um. And we're uh, equipped. We have one bilingual forensic interviewer, um, so if we, uh, who's Spanish speaking, um, but we also have the ability if someone came in and needed a different accommodation for a disability, like a ASL interpreter or anything like that, we would absolutely provide those services. All right, Kristen, well, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me. This is really fun. Thank you so much to Kristen for being on the podcast today and sharing about the hard and important work of the Children's Advocacy Center of Hamilton County. Now, April is Child Abuse Awareness Month, so the CAC has a lot of events going on throughout the month. And if you want to learn more about these events, we've included links down in the show notes of this episode. I want to highly encourage you all to go on and like their Facebook page and follow their social feeds to stay connected to what they are doing in our community throughout the year. As Kristen said in the episode, one of the challenges to ending abuse in our communities is that people are afraid to report it. So please, if you want to help end child abuse in our community, then report your suspicion. And you can do that on the Tennessee Anonymous hotline at 877 237 
Well, thank you to our studio sponsor, The Lamp Post Group. You can learn more about them at thelamppostgroup.com. And thank you all for listening. Our goal here on the Camp House Podcast is that you would feel more connected, informed, and inspired by the people, organizations, and the ideas that are shaping Chattanooga. And if that's happened for you, then please take a moment and leave us a rating and a review wherever you get your podcast from, and then share an episode with a friend. You can find all of our older episodes on our website at thecamphouse.com and just click the podcast tab at the top of the page. So thank you all for listening. I hope you have a great day, and we'll see you again next week.